as they're headed that direction, and as we prepare to hear from the Word, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel this morning. We're going to be in chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, and verses 44 through 52. That's a lectionary text for us this morning. This is our last week in our summer lectionary time, where we've just been going through the prescribed readings from our lectionary. We begin a new series next week. So let's enjoy hearing about these parables together. All right, here we go. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest garden plant. It becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they had sat down and collected the good fish and baskets and threw away the bad fish. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? He asked. Yes, they replied. And he said to them, Therefore, Every teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Yes, indeed. And amen. I am. Um, I got to apologize to everyone who is joining us online. Apparently I got in trouble with our, uh, our live stream technician, Justin, back there. Um, I'm a floating head. I normally wear a jacket. But it's just so hot, you know, mobile. And so apparently if you wear white, uh, I'm just like a floating head to everybody on the internet right now. So this is not ghost church. I do have a torso. Um, I give thanks, though, for any time you're with us in person or online. If you're not with us, you know, we do have our worship services live stream. You can watch them live or after the facts. And we upload our podcasts every Sunday night of the sermons. And so we hope that you are able to join us in worship even whenever we're not able to be together. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our deeper. And all God's people said, amen. During college, I spent a number of summers living in Panama City Beach. Growing up in Dothan, Panama City was our closest beach to go to. And we would go down there for um, retreats during the summertime as a youth. And so eventually I, I began working in college at this Methodist retreat center called Noah's Ark. It was right on the, uh, the strip in Panama City Beach. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. And, and now that I'm older, it seems like a terrible place to send college kids to in the summertime. <laughs> but we were there to serve the Lord. And uh, while we were there, we were the ones who hung out with the youth groups who would come stay at our retreat center, and we would do service projects with them. Um, we were the janitors that would sweep the floors and clean the toilets, and we were the musicians for our nightly shows. We'd play music and do shows at 8 and 10, and we'd play all sorts of music. We'd play Jimmy Buffett and Van Morrison and all sorts of beach music, and then we'd also play some pseudo-religious tunes that had deeper meanings, even some worship songs, and we'd always close with a sermon from our pastor or director or somebody who was leading it that night. Our director is, was an incredible, is, is an incredible musician. His name's Luke Penniger, and he's an awesome guy. 
and I have always, and I always will, aspire to be a musician like he is. But Luke was incredibly hard on us. He uh, wanted to, to push us to be the best janitors we could be. He, uh, he'd come and wipe his toe after we cleaned for hours along the baseboard of the dorm. And if there was a little bit of dirt on it, he'd say, clean it all again. He, uh, he wouldn't just have us send the youth groups out for service projects. We were required to go with them and serve as well. And he'd have us practice the same songs over and over until it was just the way it was supposed to be. I swear, I will never forget how to play Brown Eye Girl or Cheeseburger in Paradise until I die. It was exhausting. It was infuriating at times. He made sure to push us all the way to our point of discomfort and then push us some more. And for that, and to this day, there are fewer people who remind me of Jesus as we find him here in the Gospels than my friend Luke. This passage is the perfect example of why. You know, I've preached on this text a number of times before. Uh, Over my past 20 years of preaching and writing sermons, I've taken the same approach each time that I've preached on this text. Um, It's this version. If you read verses 31 through 45, you can see a thread of small things, right? A mustard seed. That's what's here in this vase. They're the smallest seeds, but they yield the biggest bush. It says tree, but it's really like a really big bush. If you take, if you're making dough, you only need a little bit of yeast for the flour. If you've got a great big field and it's made way more valuable, not for its size, but for some buried treasure within it that's small compared to the portion of how large the field is. And there's a pearl. It's never going to be very large, but it demands a great price. When we consider these parables that way and we analogize them to the kingdom of God, we we come up with this idea um, that even a small portion of the kingdom of God can make a big difference in the world and in our lives. It just takes a little It's It's like my kindergarten teacher tried unsuccessfully to teach me about glue. Woods, just a dot, not a lot. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But as I read these parables again this week, assuming I probably go in a similar direction, something happened. I read these very familiar, familiar passages And for some reason, I encountered them entirely differently. Their meaning had completely changed. And do you know why that happened? It's because I was reading the parables. And that's what parables do. Parables speak about things that can't be said. That's how Pete Rollins begins his book called The Orthodox Heretic, a a book that contains a collection of his own parables. Before beginning to tell his tales, he gives an introduction about the nature of parables, and he says this, a parable does not primarily provide information about our world. Rather, if we allow it to do its work within us, it will change our world, breaking it open to ever new possibilities by refusing to be held by the categories that currently exist within the world. In this way, a parable transforms the way we hold reality and therefore transforms reality itself. Parables are anomalies. They are stories that can hold more than one meaning, which is hard for us post-enlightenment people to deal with, right? A thing is supposed to be a thing, and what it was is supposed to be what it will be. The meaning of a thing should not change, right? A dollar should be a dollar, 
If I have a dollar today, it should be a dollar tomorrow, unless I put in cryptocurrency, and then who knows what it's going to be, right? If, if you have something in your mind of what that thing is, you don't expect for it to change. The meaning is supposed to always be the meaning. We like things clean, orderly, concrete, never changing, definite. Which is why when someone reads to us a parable, we want to hear them say, and here is what it means. But what happens when somebody else comes along the next day and reads the same parable and give us another meaning, and in your soul you know that they are right too? That's the paradox. That's what a parable is. Peter Rollins goes on to say, parables subvert the desire to make faith simple and understandable. They do not offer the reader clarity, for they refuse to be captured in the net of a single interpretation, and instead demand our eternal return to their words, our wrestling with them, and our puzzling over them. And that's exactly what happened to me this week. That's exactly what I found when I came back to these parables. I found that they are subversive and not at all simple. I mean, that's true of parables in general, but it's especially true of these. I mean, think about it. These parables betray our expectations. At least they would if we could hear them with the ears of the first century people who were listening to what Jesus had to say. Because when we dive into these parables in their context, we find that they are all subversive. Nothing about them is conventional. The first one, a mustard seed. It grows into a huge bush eventually. But you know, we have little use for the mustard bush. Most of us uh, don't have anything to do with mustard plants except for taking their seeds and grinding them up and turning them into mustard for our hot dogs. In fact, in the first century when Jesus was telling this story, most farmers pulled up the mustard plants that grew on their land the way we would pull up weeds today because they encroach on their preferred crops. They take over and they grow to be so big that they're unruly. So if the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, it seems like that the kingdom is a weed that nobody wants. How about yeast? Sure, it leavens bread, but what else does it do? According to the theologian Gary Peluso Verdend, too much yeast bloats the stomach and causes internal discomfort. Yeast is also the thing that rots food and that shows up on decomposing bodies. It's a fermenting agent. And so he says, it's like God is fermenting the empire of heaven within the world. So the kingdom of God is like a weed that nobody wants and the thing that rots away decay. According to Jesus, the kingdom is also like a thief. I mean, that's essentially what the man in the third parable is, right? I mean, I guess we can just skip over the question of why is he digging on somebody else's property to begin with and jump straight to the question of uh, he found this treasure on somebody else's land and it's very valuable. And rather than tell the landowner what he's found, he convinces the landowner to sell him the land at a value that is much lower than it would be if the owner knew that there was treasure in his field. I mean, that's not very godly behavior. In fact, it's, it's downright dishonest. The kingdom of God is like a dishonest, decomposing weed. It's like all those things, and it's completely broke. Has really nothing. 
because the merchant who bought the pearl of great price has no money left to even buy food for himself. He spent it all on the pearl. Think about it. Here we have a merchant. And for those hearing Jesus's words in this story, they would think of this guy like a, a sleazy used car salesman. Not like the good used car salesman, because there are those. Like the ones like Matilda's dad, right? When I was a kid, uh, my parents and my family, we would go to Atlanta twice a year for, for market, for our family's store. And one time when we were there, we were at a booth and a guy sold my dad this fancy new electric razor. It was $20, and the salesman was charismatic and, ch and charming. He was, he, was, he was selling the stew out of this razor, and the guy kept talking about uh, 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 all the different things all the way through the cash transaction. My dad gave him a $50 bill, and then he was like, so tell me about Alabama, kids, you having fun here in Atlanta, and on and on he went. And he kept talking, and eventually my dad stops him and says, uh, I gave you a 50. Uh, I'd like my change. And the guy says, oh, I was just hoping you'd forget. I mean, that's the type of merchant we're talking about here. This is, this is the guy who is buying the pearl of great price, the guy that Jesus is using as the example of who we're supposed to be, a hoodwinker, a swindler, fast talker. But one day, he finds a priceless pearl, and he doesn't haggle with the owner over the price. Instead, he liquidates everything he has and gives the person every dollar he owns so that he could possess the most valuable thing in the world. But once he has it, what is he left with? What does he really have? Sure, he has the most valuable thing a person could have, but he no longer has anything else. He can't start a new business and provide for his basic needs because he spent all of his money. The only way he could go on living would be to sell the thing he just bought. But he would always know that whatever he traded that pearl for was not as valuable as the thing he gave away. So in a weird, twisted, ironic way, the most valuable thing is actually worthless if it doesn't provide for you the basic things you need to live. What good is a pearl if you can't afford food? So in Jesus' parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a worthless, dishonest, rotting weed. Or at least that's what these parables mean if you take them at their face value. It's what you hear if there is no more meaning to what Jesus is saying but you can't do that with the parables, can you? There's no such thing as basic face value meaning in a parable. It's not like when we come and read Paul's letters and it says, do this, or here's an explanation of that. It's not like a self-help book that you get the instructions or how to improve your life. This is why Peter Allen says, sometimes the problem with so much religious communication, the way that we talk about things in the church, is aimed at changing our minds. And because of this, we hear the message of the preacher without necessarily heeding the message. We can listen to the truth and agree with it, but not change in response to it. But that's not the case with parables. The evidence that you heard a parable is that your life was transformed by it. He uses an example of people, two people having a conversation about how accumulating wealth does not bring happiness, about how working all the hours God sends you is not healthy, about how owning bigger and bigger things is damaging to the soul and to the world. But then it's like at the end of the conversation, those two people go away, and it's like they were never in the conversation to begin with. They live as if those things are true. But parables, they represent a form of communicating that cannot be heard without being heeded. The only evidence of, that you heard the message of Jesus was that it was made incarnate in your life. 
A parable is only heard when it changes our reality. And of course, this makes sense because that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus was trying to change the realities of the world. Jesus is the author of subversion. He sees the world as it is and says that is not how it should be. He knows a better way and is trying to flip the status quo on its head. Jesus wants the reality of existence to be more like the kingdom of heaven. The world is corrupt and Jesus is just. We are flawed and Christ is perfect. Humanity spouts hate and Jesus offers love. So how does the kingdom of heaven infiltrate a corrupt world? Subversion. In a corrupt world where everything looks like pretty flowers and fruitful crops, it presents like a weed that grows bigger than any other plant. If the kingdom of the world looks like perfectly baked bread, Jesus adds too much yeast to destroy it from within. Jesus tricks the person who thinks they own it all so that he can make known the goodness of the kingdom that is buried underneath. And the thing about the kingdom is that it is the most priceless thing that there will ever be. As co-heirs with Christ, there is nothing greater you will ever have than an inheritance in God's kingdom. But the value of that will not make sense in the world's standards. So to everybody else, the kingdom of heaven will seem worthless. Your behavior will seem like it doesn't have any meaning and like it doesn't matter. Jesus isn't just giving us stories with pretty bows on them. He's showing us just how subversive he is. How subversive, how subversive the kingdom has to be to enter a world that is so unlike what God intends. So the question left for us today is, is subversion still required? We as the church are the body of Christ. We're supposed to do on earth what Jesus did and to help bring about what God desires. And so if Jesus offered subversive kingdom parables, do we need to also? I expect if the world looks like the kingdom, then there is no need for subversion. Perhaps instead we can make our move to those concrete, simple, direct things, since everything's the way it should be. I mean, we would not need to try and subvert the world if how we understand justice is not any different from the way Jesus understands justice, right? If all the most vulnerable people are cared for, if there are no needs of the orphans and the widows, if the people who have had been marginalized or oppressed are fully cared for, that must mean that justice is rolling down like a mighty river. We don't need any subversion if we're already all loving our enemies just the way Jesus said. If we're living in a world where everybody is able to forgive those who have wronged them, if we're able to love the person that we would have otherwise hated, then we no longer need parables of fluid meaning. But as it stands, I look around and I find anyone hard-pressed to say that that's the way things are. No, I, I'd say Jesus was on to something. And maybe we still need to employ a bit of subversion in our own world. But I wonder, what does it look like? What does it look like to be subversive for the kingdom if everyone in your friend group is already a Christian, but just uninterested in fulfilling their membership vows? How can you be a weed 
in your coworkers' lives if they condone all sorts of unsavory behaviors. If the people in your life can turn a blind eye to the things that cause harm to the people Jesus said we're supposed to look after the most, how can you uh, be a bit too much yeast that causes their bellies to bloat with discomfort? Friends, we still have a need for parables. Um, We still need to subvert this present order because we know there is still work to be done. Parables are the weapons of the revolutionaries. They're the things that we have to use and to come back to and to struggle with ourselves if we want to know what we are fighting against and to help others know as well. If society resembles the empire of Rome much more closely than the empires of heaven, expressing it in its policies, in the budget, the values of social inequality or of redemptive violence, then parables are the trebuchets, launching fluctuating meaning at the things that God means to bring down. You know, the the reason Luke, my friend, reminds me of Jesus is not because he's super loving and comforting, which he is. I mean, he, he has those moments, especially now that I'm older, I understand it better. But it's because he saw things as they were and said, that's not as it should be. He knew that whatever our hands find to do, we must do with all our heart. He knew that cleaning things good enough is not good enough. That the kingdom of God is full of things that make us uncomfortable. And so if we're going to be agents of the kingdom, then we have to get past our places of comfort. That's what I hear in these parables. They are meant to make us see that the world needs more. The world deserves better. This is God's creation. We do not give up on the world just because it's not as it ought to be. Instead, we decide we're going to look like a weed in a field of roses. That we're going to spoil some food that we're going to be subversive in ways that might make us a little uncomfortable. It's possible that who we are and what we are aiming for may look worthless to everybody else. But the truth is, we have nothing more valuable in the entire world that we can experience and that we can share with others in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has said, it is already here. So may we not only experience it, but show it in any way we can. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.